And this morning we'll be looking at uh, Ma- or Matthew. We'll be looking at Mark, chapter nine, uh, really verses 38 through 41. Just three verses this morning. But I'm going to read, really starting at verse 30 through verse 41. I want us just to get the overall context, even as we just focus in on those three verses. Mark chapter 9, and I'll read starting at verse 30. Would you stand, if you're able to, as I read? Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word for us today. You You may be seated. Join me as I pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we have prayed several times already in this worship service this morning. And I come again, not out of habit, and not because this is how sermons are supposed to start, but I come to you, Lord, out of a great sense of need. I need your help, that I would speak only what is true, that I would speak only what is helpful for the building up of the saints, ultimately for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. So I pray that I might decrease and that Christ might increase. And we need your help here this morning, O Lord, to to listen to you. So Holy Spirit, give us open ears, open hearts, and have your will with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Arthur Tapper Pearson probably may not be familiar with many of us here. A.T. Pearson, as he was better known. He was born in New York City in 1837. He served as a pastor, as a missionary, really as as a Bible teacher for some 50 years. He was actually a friend and contemporary of D.L. Moody, of George Mueller, and C.H. Spurgeon. Those are names that might be a little bit more familiar. In fact, when Spurgeon died unexpectedly in 1892, A.T. Pearson was asked to fill the pulpit at London, England's Metropolitan Tabernacle, which he did for the next two and a half years. Pearson's probably best known for his advocacy of world missions, and in particular, the student missionary movement of the late 1800s. 
in a sermon that he preached in 1900 to a group of these students gathered before him, he said the ideal missionary must have four passions, a passion for the truth, a passion for Christ, a passion for the souls of men, and a passion for self-sacrificing. I don't know if his text was the Gospel of Mark, but it sure seems like he's getting that from the Gospel of Mark. But perhaps you hear that and you think, well, yeah, that makes sense. Those four passions, I mean, if you're going to be a missionary, that makes sense. You ought to have those four passions. You're going to leave your country of origin. You're going to go to a new place. You're going to learn a new language. It's probably going to be really hard. Yeah, for missionaries, they should have those four passions. That sounds about right. In case perhaps you haven't noticed, Missions is not just what happens over there somewhere in a distant land. It's actually what happens right here. And especially, brothers and sisters, especially given our increasingly secular age and secular culture, and that's our culture here, if you name the name of Jesus and if you're a Christian, if you're identified as a Christian in your neighborhood, in your office, wherever, it's like... It is a cross-cultural experience more and more, isn't it? It's like we have to, we're speaking a different language almost, and there's different norms and different customs and different habits. So the truth is, we are sent ones, if you're a Christian, we are missionaries in that sense. It just may be that the place that the Lord has called us to serve is actually the zip code in which we live. So A.T. Pearson here, when he describes those four passions, He's actually not just describing four passions for the missionary, the person who leaves home and goes to a foreign land. He's describing the ideal disciple of Jesus, really the ideal Christian, that followers of Jesus are to have the the same passions as Jesus does, that our passions actually align with His So we want to be about His work. We want to be about His kingdom. We want to be about His glory. We want to share His passions. Except when we don't. And sometimes we disciples don't actually share the same passions as Jesus does. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Obviously, we're sinners We're still working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Suffering can wreak havoc with our passions. There's, frankly, all kinds of ways that we can be thinking and desiring and wanting all kinds of things that are actually not honoring to the Lord. So it's not that we don't have passions or that we lack zeal or that we no longer get excited about anything. It's just that from day to day and week to week, sometimes our passions are misplaced. Our zeal can easily be misplaced, and we as disciples can go rogue on Jesus. And Jesus then needs to bring us back. And praise God that Jesus brings his disciples back. It didn't take long for the disciples here, as we're learning in Mark, for their passions to go wayward. I mean, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, one thing has become clear about these disciples. They still have a long way to go. They haven't arrived yet. 
in their understanding of Jesus and certainly in their aligning of his passions with theirs. We've seen that, haven't we, in the last couple weeks here in the book of Mark. Uh, Jesus, we want a conquering Savior. We want a victorious Messiah. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with the, the suffering part. That's what we're really passionate about. Uh, Jesus, we'd, we'd actually prefer to be self-sufficient. Like, we want to cast out that demon. How come we can't do that? Uh, Jesus, we're having a hard time figuring out who's the greatest among us. Any chance you can give us just an inside track on that? Just give us a name. Obviously, last week we, we learned that the disciples were actually not real passionate about serving the lowly among them. They were passionately self-absorbed. They were actually seeking a position of greatness, of a high position, so they thought. But a passion for truth, a passion for Christ, a passion for the souls of men, a passion for self-sacrificing, at least at this point, we wouldn't look at the disciples and say, yeah, I think those guys got that. They're not there yet. So what happens then when the disciples of Jesus have passions that are actually not shared by Jesus? What happens when what Jesus is actually passionate about, well, that's actually not shared by his own disciples? Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, this is the only time in Mark's gospel that John, the disciple, he really takes center stage all on his own here. But this isn't the first time that we've heard about John or that we know something about John or that we can even understand some of John's passions. If you recall back in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus gives John and his brother James a nickname. He calls them sons of thunder. Now, if Jesus gives you the nickname Sons of Thunder, that doesn't mean you're really quiet. You're not a church mouse. These two brothers are the same brothers who a bit later, as we'll learn in Mark chapter 10, they're the ones that are going to ask Jesus, hey, we're really looking for the best seats in the kingdom here. You can do that for us, right? These are the same brothers in Luke chapter 9. An entire Samaritan village rejected Jesus, rejected him. And it's these two brothers, James and John, who says, hey, Jesus, uh, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Because we can do that. Want us to wipe them out? And Jesus is like, no. (laughs) The text says he rebuked them sternly. Don't do that. So James and John here, these are passionate guys. They're easily fired up, and they stay riled up. So what's got John so riled up here in Mark chapter 9? Well, John came across someone who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And John said, no way. I'm going to stop that and put an end to that. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us who this mysterious man was that was doing this. But from the text itself, the verses really following here and the context and what Jesus says, we can can deduce that this man casting out demons was a, a true believer in Jesus. He was a sincere Christian, as we would say. But he was outside of the immediate circle of the 12 disciples. Notice carefully what John says here. Uh, Lord, I saw this guy casting out demons in your name, 
and he is not following us. He's not following us, Lord. Now, I can imagine the other disciples heard that. I can imagine Peter hearing that and thinking, finally, somebody else sticks his foot in his mouth. It's not just me. But it's kind of like with kids, if one child is being disciplined and they're in trouble and the other siblings kind of gather around and think, I wonder what mom and dad, let's watch. What, what's mom and dad going to do? That's what the disciples here are doing. John just said that. Did he mean that? John did not say, here's this guy casting out demons and he's not following you, Lord. He's not following you, Lord, and that's why I wanted to stop him. No, John says, here's this guy, he's casting out demons in your name, and he's not following us. I mean you, Lord. But that's the root of the problem. John here is he's zealous, he's incredibly passionate, he's jealous, in fact. He really has no room for this guy who is doing things that he wasn't able to do himself. The disciples... Just a few verses earlier, Matthew or Mark chapter 9, verse 18, they failed to cast out a demon. And now here's this guy who is doing in Jesus' name the precise thing that they couldn't do because of their lack of faith. They don't even know this guy's name. He's not one of them. But he's casting out demons and he's doing it with success. So this man is a threat to John and to these disciples. He's a blow to their ego, to, to their unique status as the chosen disciples of Jesus. He's, he's really undermining their status. He's not on the inner circle with Jesus, and so they're not happy about it. Um, Jesus, he's not part of our team. Uh, Jesus, we, we don't even know this guy's name. Uh, he, he doesn't go to the same conferences that you send us to He's clearly not part of our group. He hasn't put in the long hours of training that we've undergone. He doesn't belong. So we see here what the disciples, John, really all of them, what they're really passionate about, don't we? They're actually not passionate about the truth. They are passionate to protect their own status. They're not really passionate about Christ and His kingdom they are passionate, very zealous to protect their own interests, to keep anyone who is not inside their circle out. And their overriding concern here, it's actually not for this man, is it? It's not for his well-being. It's not for his giftedness. It's not for the good that God is doing in him. It's not for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It's not for the spiritual victories that are happening because this guy is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. No, it's, their overriding concern is actually themselves. He's not one of us. So it's misplaced passion. It's really misplaced zeal. And that same thing, obviously, brothers and sisters, that happens today it can happen very subtly. It can happen very quickly in our own hearts. As, as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully, hold to the truth, well, sometimes our passions, they don't align with Jesus. Personal ambition can become more important than really the truth of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Our zealousness, perhaps, to, to guard and protect the truth can, well, sometimes it can result in a glaring lack of love for true disciples of Jesus who may be different than us, who maybe think differently than us. I mean, we, 
We seem pretty good at expressing concerns about other churches or other groups of Christians that name the name of Jesus because they are different than us. We can even make it sound holy, noble, and good. Now, hear what I'm saying. Differences matter. Differences in certain areas of doctrine and church polity and structure, those are not unimportant things. And in fact, as you well know, brothers and sisters, there are whole denominations that have just jettisoned the gospel completely. The gospel has left the building or their buildings. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here we have a true disciple. As we would say, he's trusting in Christ for the salvation of his sins but yet he's not part of the inner circle with these disciples. And they don't know what to do with him. John wants to stop him and shut him down. There's suspicion. So we get that. We might be suspicious of a guy like that. We might be suspicious even of people that go to a different church or an entire different denomination and slowly, but Oftentimes, subtly, our hearts just become closed, more and more closed to true disciples of Jesus who are just different than us and might think differently on all kinds of secondary issues. This is just a few weeks ago. I was meeting a, a new person and just getting to know this guy. He was asking, you know, what do you do? What are you? The, the typical kind of introductory conversations. And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He said, what church? And I gave him the name. And then what was a little bit surprising to me, he said, well, tell me about your church which I love that question. Uh, but a lot of people don't ask that question. So I began to tell him, like, here's kind of what we're about and gospel-centeredness. And so, you know, he listened attentively. And I didn't give him a sermon, but, you know, just filled in some of the details. I just wanted to be clear. And then he looked at me and said, oh, so you're reformed. <laughs> and then the conversation kind of ended there, and it was like, like I had 12 heads. Now, that happens both ways, doesn't it? I mean, you might be in that situation and, and you're talking to somebody from maybe a different church and they're talking about that and then you're like, maybe you don't say it, but inwardly you're thinking, oh, so you're fill in the blank. That's what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, love. Love is a distinguishing mark for disciples of Jesus. So here's the question for all of us to consider. Can we actually love other churches who name the name of Jesus? but they're gonna be different than us, and we're different from them. Can we, can we actually love other people who name the name of Jesus without thinking that we're in competition, or it's us versus them, or somehow we're more spiritual or something than them? Church, if, if, if your suspicions about another sincere believer who names the name of Jesus it drives you to ignore them or reject them out of hand or to ridicule them or to talk smack about them behind their back. It's not them that needs to change. It's your heart and my heart that needs to change. We need to repent of that. Because what Jesus is driving at here, and really this is the point of these, this little story here. The, really the point here, what Jesus is driving at is simply this. Rejoice in the truth wherever you find it. Rejoice in the truth wherever you find it. So can you, can I, 
Can we rejoice in the truth wherever we find it, even if we find it in some unlikely places and maybe in some surprising places or even surprising, at least to us, people? This is, this is a challenge for John here, isn't it? Like right now, he's not rejoicing in the truth as he found it. He's looking to shut this guy down. He's struggling big time. We would say, yeah, for John, he's a son of thunder. His passions here are getting, they're out in front of him. So Jesus has to slow him down here a little bit. And that's what he does. Look with me at verse 39 and 40. Jesus corrects him. He, he really rebukes him. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So this man is casting out demons in Jesus' name. He's doing the right thing. He's saying the right thing. He is, by the power of God, accomplishing the right thing. And Jesus says, John, why would you have a problem with that? Why is this a problem for you? Because the one who's not against me is actually for me and for us. So, John, rejoice in the truth wherever you find it, even if this guy is not part of your inner circle. Perhaps John expected a commendation from Jesus. I'm doing his work. I'm protecting the kingdom. We got our circle. We got our band. We're in the in crowd. But that's not what he receives from Jesus, does he? Jesus, in fact, says, John, don't stop him, but you need to stop what you're doing. And Jesus gives John, and by extension his disciples, two reasons for doing this. Number one, anyone doing these things in my name does so by the power of God. So John, it's actually an evidence of the call of God on this man's life. So don't get in his way. Don't hinder him. In fact, help him. Don't try to restrain him. Rejoice in and with him as the truth goes forward and as it is witnessed. Now again, hear what I'm saying. No doubt there are exceptions to this. There are religious charlatans who invoke the name of Jesus for their own personal gain. They end up doing great damage to the gospel, to the kingdom of God, frankly to people like us. And Jesus is aware of that because he speaks about that. He speaks of those, remember, who will prophesy in my name and they're going to perform miracles and they're going to cast out demons in my name. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. I knew there was a reference to Matthew that was actually right. <laughs> Yet Jesus says, I never knew you. Clearly, brothers and sisters, Jesus sees the human heart like only Jesus can. Jesus sees your heart like only Jesus can. You and I, we don't peer into other people's hearts and see all the motivations clearly, do we? We don't even see our own hearts with very much accuracy on most days. But Jesus, as King, as Savior, He knows who belongs to Him. And frankly, the guys that were working around here and even in our own day, some of those religious hucksters that frankly can at least for me, make me both very, very angry and very, very sad at the same time, they will face judgment from Jesus one day. Jesus knows those who are really his. Here's the second reason why he says to John, don't, don't stop this guy. 
Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, that is, that's a proverb from Jesus. In fact, he states the same thing in Luke chapter 9, verse 50, and an interesting uh, parallel, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he just switches it up in reverse. There he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, you read that first thing, wait, is Jesus, did he just contradict himself there? That doesn't seem to make sense. And it's not a contradictory truth in any way, but we do have to understand a little bit of how Proverbs actually work, really how the, how the book of Proverbs work and what Jesus is actually saying here. Proverbs, by definition, are, are general truths. They're not absolute truths. They are meant to be applied to specific situations, to specific circumstances, and those specific situations and circumstances are not all the same. They're going to change. So, for example, uh, Proverbs 26, verse 4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. You think, okay, great, I got it, that's super helpful, I got my marching instructions. Don't talk to a fool because you're, you're going to end up like a fool. Got it, you close your Bible, you go about the day, and there's fools all over the place, and you don't talk to any of them. And then you think, what? I'm not sure, is this... Maybe I should keep reading. So you do. The next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you think, what? I should have stopped reading at verse 4. So which is it? Am I supposed to answer a fool? Or am I supposed to not answer a fool? Do I talk to a fool? Do I not talk to a fool? Well, this is how Proverbs function. You make... An absolute, if you make an absolute rule out of a particular proverb, well, that, you will live as an absolute fool. Proverbs are meant to be applied to specific circumstance and situation. In other words, biblical wisdom, to, to close this loop with the example here in Proverbs, biblical wisdom is that sometimes you do need to talk to a fool, absolutely. And sometimes you should not talk to a fool. And the only way that you're going to know the difference is to humble yourself and ask God for wisdom. And by extension, people that you trust, godly counselors. So here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus gives us this proverb. The one who is not against us is for us. What he is opposing, brothers and sisters, is the sort of spiritual partisanship and and the religious cliques that can so easily run roughshod over people and do great damage to the kingdom of God. Jesus here is opposing the kind of spiritual tribalism that that does great damage to the kingdom of God, to the gospel, to the church, when his own disciples are actually neglecting the kingdom of God, God's move and the advancement of the kingdom for some secondary agenda, probably their own agenda, personal agenda. This scene here in Mark 9 is reminiscent of A pretty fascinating scene that we read about in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11, verse 26 through 30. You don't have to turn there. But but in that passage, Moses and the 70 elders, well, they take a spiritual field trip. And they go outside the camp where the Lord speaks to them. He comes to them in a cloud, and, and the Spirit of the Lord rests on them. And these guys, all 70 of them, they begin to prophesy. Well, there are two guys, Eldad 
and me, Dad. Well, they didn't make the cut. They didn't make the trip. They stayed at base camp. And so they prophesied where they were at the base camp there, and the Spirit of God rested on them. But that was the problem. They're not part of that in-group. They're not part of the 70. And so, well, troubling news travels very, very fast, and it got to Joshua, who is Moses' able assistant. And Joshua goes to Moses and says, you need to stop them. Translation, they're not one of us. And I wonder if, I mean, no doubt Joshua was probably equally as passionate as John was here. It's sort of the Old Testament equivalent of, uh, Lord, you want, me, you want to rain down some fire on these two guys? Can we do that? But Moses says, Numbers 11, verse 29, Moses said to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? In other words, Joshua, it's, it's actually not about you. You need to think bigger here. Time to expand your categories. It's not the messenger that's most important here. It's actually the divine message here that's most important. And so here in Mark chapter 9, with this proverb here, Jesus is teaching his disciples that, look, it's the spiritual victory over demons. If you want to get excited, you want to be passionate about anything, be passionate about that. Not the identity of this guy and whether or not he's in our circle. This guy is doing the right things in the right way accomplishing the right things by the power of God in the name of Jesus. And yet the disciples, namely John, they, they can't get behind that. They're struggling. So brothers and sisters, can you rejoice whenever and wherever you see and hear truth, even if it comes from someone who's maybe not in your theological circle or in your spiritual tribe? Maybe it is the case this morning that you enjoy a very close-knit group of friends. That's a wonderful blessing. You all read the same blogs, you listen to the same podcasts, maybe you do go to the same conferences and you read the same websites. But yet there's this undercurrent that it's only truth if it comes from within your group. And so no one else can really break in. No one else feels really welcome by anyone inside the group and kind of everyone else is met with some suspicion and doubt and skepticism. Well, that guy's not, he's not part of us. He's not from our same tribe, so well, we're not going to listen to that guy. In fact, we should maybe try and stop what he's doing. Even though he's doing the right thing, he's saying the right thing, he's accomplishing the right thing by the Spirit of God. It could be that your heart is just more and more closed. You're not able to rejoice in the truth because it comes from someone that you don't really care about. So we, we all need to check our hearts here. We need to check our motives and yes, examine our passions. We need to ask the Lord to do that for us. Perhaps it is that in situations like that, we, we absolutely can be more motivated by fear or jealousy or selfishness than, than actually by the goodness of the gospel going out. We're, we're motivated by, again, some of our own worries and fears than by the glory of God and the kingdom of God that is advancing. Churches can become like this. Slowly and subtly, usually without warning. Whole denominations can become like this. Non-denominations can become like this. Families can subtly become like this too. So can you rejoice? Can you celebrate when you hear the truth 
and you see the truth. Church, God's purposes in this world, they're so much larger than just one church. They're so much larger than just our church, so much larger than just our community and even just one denomination. Hear me again. Yes, we need discernment. Yes, there are religious hucksters. Yes, we need wisdom and we need to have those sorts of conversations. But we also need to have hearts that are big enough to be able to say amen. That's the truth. Praise God. It's going out. Amen. I've talked about these guys before in previous sermons, but I'm, there's a bunch of guys that I went to seminary with 20-some years ago. And we get together once a year for a long weekend. I think we're going on 23 years now, usually in November. I love these guys. One of the things that I so appreciate, though, about these guys is that we don't read all the same blogs. And we don't go to all the same conferences. And we don't read all the same books. But they love Jesus. And they are serving Jesus sincerely. And even though we differ on all sorts of secondary issues, there is... No jealousy, there's no tribalism, there's no favoritism. Half of those guys were in my wedding, but if we lived in the same city, we would not go to the same church. Perhaps you have friends like that, maybe family members like that, where there there are all kinds of differences, different backgrounds, different churches, but you do share faith in Christ. And they would be able to say, too, that salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So can you rejoice then when you see and hear the truth working its way in their lives and working out of their lives and in their church? Verse 41, notice here the contrast between John and Jesus. John was threatened by what he deemed to be a rogue disciple of Jesus who needed to be stopped. But Jesus, well, what does Jesus do? Well, in fact, he throws open his arms and welcomes all those who even do the smallest task in his name, just offering a cup of cold water. All those who provide love and support for, in this instance, the lowliest of Jesus' disciples, well, Jesus says, well, they're, they're in fact working for the kingdom of God, and they will be rewarded. So service to others. Like we talked about last week, that humility of Christ, that actually frees us from our cliques and from our tribes and from our spiritual partisanship. It really gets our eyes off of ourselves and onto others who need the same Jesus that you and I are in desperate need of. So, brothers and sisters, when we begin to see ourselves as servants, servants, and we begin to understand how Christ has welcomed us in the gospel, how at one point we deserve death, but he's given us life. We were rebels. He adopts us as sons and daughters. When we see ourselves as servants and we understand how Christ in his grace and kindness undeserved has welcomed us, well, then we'll be ready to welcome others who may think differently than us. When we really begin to understand that even on our best days, our most holiest of days, and by God's grace, sometimes we have those days, 
But even on those days, we understand we all fall woefully short. We miss the standard. But yet Jesus rescues us. When we really begin to see ourselves as servants and understand that so many moments of the day, our passions are all over the place. It's not for Christ. It's not for the souls of men. It's not for his kingdom. But so often, our passions turn inward. It's to protect ourselves, to do whatever we can to make life more comfortable or more palatable, whatever it may be. But even then, in the gospel, God sets his steadfast love upon us, and he rescues us from ourselves. This kind of Christ-like humility, it's not just, as we talked about last week, it's not just how to be great in God's kingdom, but it's also how we can actually love other true disciples of Jesus and not feel threatened by them. Outside of Jesus, I think the Apostle Paul understood this best. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And this is the part that I don't get. And in this I can rejoice. I mean, seriously, Paul? Are are you really saying that you can rejoice because at the end of the day, Christ is proclaimed? I mean, Paul, even when the motives of these guys are shady and suspect, but if Christ is preached, you're saying, Paul, I can rejoice rejoice. That's what he's saying. So what Paul is doing here is giving us, I think, a very important lesson on Christian maturity. And it's this. One mark, one important mark of spiritual Christian maturity is that you can actually cheer for other Christians. You can celebrate with them in the good that God is doing for them and in them and through them. Now, I'm not talking about churches who don't preach Christ or preach the truncated gospel or false gospel or perverted gospel. Discernment is needed. This, they can get tricky and it get complicated. But let us not make it even more complicated by adding your own bias or jealousy or suspicions to it. We do need to understand who the real enemy is. The devil is prowling all around us, seeking to devour. But the enemy is not the fundamental Bible church down the street. Or it's not all Southern Baptists, or all Pentecostals, or all Charismatics. So can you sincerely celebrate, cheer for other churches and even other denominations when the truth is preached and when the truth is proclaimed? even as we think about our own church. Pray for revival here, a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit. I hope that you are praying for that. Would you actually be happy if this kind of genuine spiritual revival didn't start in our church, but it actually started at Valley Real Life? And so you hear about that, or maybe it, it happens in another church, and God is tangibly blessing, and there's much fruitful ministry so you think, I, I, maybe I'm not too familiar with that church. And so you, you go on their website, 
and you discover that, well, they're not really reformed. How can God move in that church? Or you understand, you listen to some of the songs on a Sunday, and well, they don't, they sing different songs than we do. That doesn't seem fair. Why is God not moving in our church? Well, then it really isn't about the truth, is it? It's not about the kingdom of God. It's not about the kingdom advance, and it's really about you and your kingdom. I mean, do we, do we really want all people to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, to repent of their sins and turn to Him, or do we actually want them to come to Christ through us? It has to, has to happen here. If the disciples really understood Jesus was laying down His life in service to them by going to the cross, suffering an excruciating death for them, they really wouldn't have been threatened by somebody casting out demons in the name of Jesus who wasn't part of their group. In fact, instead of being passionate about protecting their own rank and their own position, they would have actually been passionate about the things that Jesus was passionate about, being great in His kingdom, serving the lowliest of the disciples. Praise God that the truth of the gospel is found here. We want to grow in that. As the gospel is preached, the gospel is sung, the gospel is prayed. We talk about it. We talk about it, the truth in our home groups and discipleship groups. We want to build our lives on the truth. We have still much areas to grow. So we want to grow in faithfulness and in love and certainly in the fruit of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, we also want to grow in being able to celebrate and rejoice wherever we see the truth. And whenever we see the truth and hear the truth, even if it comes from some unlikely people in some surprising places.